I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hey everyone, this is Kristen Sinanta Walker and I am here with a guest that's been on a couple times before, Julie Brand. Hey Julie, how are you? I'm doing fine. Good morning, Kristen. Glad to be back. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Now I said this to you offline and I want to say this in front of our listeners as well. First, um, you wrote a book called A Mother's Touch, Surviving Mother-Daughter Sexual Abuse. And we're going to be talking about something different today, but I thought it was so interesting um, because that's, you know, such a taboo um, subject or it has been. And we posted an article on the network website about this that went along with one of the shows that we did. And it is the most commented article that we have on the site, which I, of, of, of the thousands of articles that we have up there, which I think is, and, and a lot, like we had thousands of comments that people said, this is just private, please don't approve, but we didn't know how to reach you. And so we just kept them you know, private. We didn't post them as a public comment, but they just felt like they had to say something. So I thought that was fascinating. Wow. That's, um, that blows me away. And it really gives me great joy, not because it's about me, but because it's recognizing that females, including family members, mothers, stepmoms, aunties, sisters, cousins, grandmas um, can sexually abuse kids, Mm -hmm. girls and boys. It's interesting when I, the first time I spoke on that topic was in 2005 at a big conference in San Diego. And I had an audience of about 15 and (laughs) um, yeah. And uh, people kept looking at me like I, you know, kind of a deer in the headlights look like I was, crazy. They'd never heard of such a thing. But I may have said in another program, there were two women who came up to me during that conference. And I'm like, you know, should I even be talking about this? Why am I putting myself out there? And they each whispered to me, please keep talking about mother-daughter sex abuse. I'm a survivor too. And people don't know. So fast forward 
to August 2018 when I was back at the Crimes Against Children conference in Dallas. And I presented programs on mother-daughter sex abuse, female offenders in positions of trust, which is mostly teachers, um, male victims, which we're going to talk about a little bit today, and resiliency. And in the audience of hmm, maybe 100 people, um, police officers, social workers, therapists, victim advocates, um, I asked this time, as I do every time, how many of you have had a case where the female, where the sex offender was female? And I'm being conservative. I'd say 30% of the hands went up. Mm. I was blown away. And then I said, would you keep your hand up, please, if it was a familial case, a family member? And about half of those, the hands stayed up. I celebrate that because it tells me we have made progress in the last decade in recognizing that females do offend. And I'm not focused on prosecution, although I did um, testify as an expert witness in in one case um, last year. But my focus is on victims being identified, disclosing, getting help. And if that new awareness is there, whether it's the boy who is raped by his 35-year-old English teacher or the little girl whose mother is her perpetrator, um, the recognition of this is increasing, and that means there's more services and help for victims. So we are making progress, and I know it's hard to see sometimes. Um, But in the big picture, we are starting to really care about children, and we're starting to care about people's childhood experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, right now, this is timely um, (laughs) because of what's going on on in the news right now with what we're going to talk about today. And you're actually doing a workshop about female perpetrators of boys. Yeah. Um, Last year, um, I developed a program on male victims. And and a part of that focuses on on female perps because the dynamics are intensified. And um, it's proven to be very popular. I don't really care about that. But what makes my heart sing is the men in the audiences who have responded and who have written to me. The men who wear two hats, maybe they're police officers, maybe they're social workers. Um, They're there at the conferences as professionals, but they're also survivors. And many times they've never shared their childhood trauma with anyone because it's so hard. So maybe, can we talk a little bit about... Absolutely. um, the ACE study, <laughs> yeah, the ACE I don't study. know Absolutely. if your audience knows about this, but this is connected to everything that I do, and I'm a, such a advocate for it. The ACE study, A-C-E, stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, mm-hmm. and you can read all about it on, on the net. But what it was, um, was a study done in the 1990s, and two gentlemen who 
oh, if I ever get to meet them, <laughs> it will be such a high. If they're listening, um, no. <laughs> no, say their Dr. names. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Robert Anda, who's with the Center for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, and Dr. Vincent Vanelli, Valetti, I'm sorry, F-E-L-I-T-T-I, Valetti, at Kaiser Permanente in San Diego. And they combined to do research around how childhood experiences impact us throughout our lives. And you know how hard it is to get a decent sample size for research in this field? Well, they came up with a 10-item, 10-questions questionnaire that was given to um, Kaiser Permanente um, health insurance receivers. So you're doing an intake, and they're asking you about all your health issues, and here's one more page with simple questions about your childhood. And so they asked um, things about, you know, was someone in the in the home, was there a problem with um, alcohol? Was a family member incarcerated? Uh, were your parents ever separated or divorced? Um, did you live with a household member who was depressed or mentally ill? Or did a household member attempt suicide? Ten questions. And number three, very non-threatening, was did an adult or person at least five years older than you ever touch or fondle you or have you touch their body in a sexual way or try or actually have oral, anal, or vaginal sex with you, yes or no? And for each of these questions, you just put a yes and a yes gets you one point. Very non-threatening, confidential. They had over 17,000 responses wow. and spent the next decade analyzing the research, collating what they found with the health issues and life of these adults. These were, these were adult respondents. The average age was, I think, 57. So they were able to make connections between if you had four or more yeses out of the ten questions, then as they study this, you are at increased risk for depression. Yeah, okay, I know. Duh. I remember taking surprised. it. I know. Yeah. I remember taking it myself um, a yes. few times, and I'm always an eight. And I'm like, oh my goodness, um, <laughs> you are resilient. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, not that that's well, like a badge of honor. Of, you know, it's nothing to be ashamed of either. But it's right. like, it does hit me sometimes when I'm really, because what that also can do is lead you into a life of um, not living to your fullest potential, um, being the, you know, regular healthy people are critical of themselves. But if you uh, register high or you come up with a high score on the ACE test, you are so critical of yourself. And that can also keep you from really, you know, living to your your full potential or, or, you know, excelling to your full potential. And um, what's fascinating to me is when I'm doing those things where I'm so hard on myself (laughs) and somebody in my life that knows me very well, my ex-husband will say, God, can you just stop being so hard on yourself? 
that's when I remember that test and I go and I yes. give myself a break. <laughs> I'm identifying with everything you just said. I know, I know. It's like um, humility is not a problem. Self-worth can be, you know. Um, <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. Exactly. Yeah. Anytime well, I think what, about what, what's things nice about myself, I think, stop bragging. <laughs> Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. We can't do that. We can't do that. And so we tell funny, I call it deprecating wit. Yes. yes. <laughs> and most days it is at that level. Well, the fascinating thing to me with my focus, of course, on sexual abuse is what we learned um, about the frequency of sexual abuse, people who ha answered yes to number three. Right. And we had always said, the stats were one in four females experiences some form of sexual abuse or molestation before the age of 18. And we had said one in six males. And a lot of people would challenge that. Um, I still have that sometimes when in, after this program. A gentleman will come up and he'll say, you know, I know you've got the stats and stuff, but I, it's hard for me to fathom that one in six men have experienced sexual abuse. He mm -hmm. said, I, I never did, and, and I don't know anyone who did. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I said, they just haven't felt safe to share with you. Yeah. It's your brothers. It's your friends. It's your uncle. It's your spouse. It's, but for guys to disclose that to someone, their deepest, darkest, secret is really difficult. So what we found from the ACE study, and then there's been subsequent research um, for in many different areas, but that 25% of the girls, one in four of the women, excuse me, reported sexual abuse, and 16% of the adult males, which is one in six. And so we don't have to debate the frequency, um, right. because that that leads to services not being provided, funding. Um, right. Yeah, and so that's why I get excited about the ACE. But what we want from that is more research about resiliency and about the effects of intervention. Okay, so you go through your whole life, and you're 57, like this this average age, and you never got therapy, and you never told anybody, and you've struggled with chemical dependency, unemployment, you know, six marriages. Okay, what about those people who were able to disclose and get help? How did that change their trajectory? And that's what some researchers are trying to look at now, like people like you and me. <laughs> How did right. we end up? semi-functional if the world thinks we are and uh <laughs> and where do we, we get our great sense of humor okay right. um and how come you know we made it and that's the next area that, that we're doing a lot of research on now but we do know the difference it makes when people are able to talk about their childhood trauma and to disclose it it isn't what happens to us it's how we interpret what happens. It's what we say to ourselves about what happens. For example, you, a child, two kids grow up in, in the same 
dysfunctional, violent home. Maybe there's sexual abuse or not. One life trajectory is victim and continues to be re-victimized for decades. And like you said, never fulfills his or her potential. The other one goes on to med school and is a a brilliant doctor and and does um, volunteer work in Africa. Huh? They came out of the same gene pool. They came out of very similar, you know, um, childhood trauma. What made the difference? And we find, you know, it's interventions by other people, self-concept, what they told themselves about their experiences. So it's like, I deserve Mm. this. Um, I'm a bad person. Um, God doesn't love me. Um, All this stuff happened to me because I'm rotten to the core. Or the other person who gets different messages. Your family was kind of screwed up, but that doesn't mean you have to be. And you have gifts and you have strengths. And here are people who will support you. And you can have a very different life. So we're, we struggle to look at how, what makes that different. Am I making sense? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And not that, you know, I, I struggle when I think about this too, because I've got so many people I know that are in recovery from addiction and they are the the scapegoat or the black sheep of the family and everybody's a doctor, but everybody was abused in one way or another. It wasn't a healthy upbringing and they're the only one that doesn't measure up to blah, 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 blah. And yet what I find fascinating in many, many of these cases is, okay, so they don't um, live up to the, what society would deem as successful like their siblings, but okay. however, however, they've been through so much stuff and they've worked so hard on themselves that yes. la- later in life, later yes. in life, they're the wise sage that their <laughs> doctor brother comes to and says, help me, I'm having a midlife crisis and I don't know <laughs> what to do. And then they're <laughs> lauded and they write a book and they, but they just do it way later. It's really fascinating to me. It's that just, is. You know, it's fascinating. That's also hope-inducing, realistic hope. Absolutely. Okay. Um, Yeah, yeah. Well, let me talk a little bit, if I can, about boys. Because I was, when I was doing research before on my book and when I was speaking about mother-daughter, I was ignorant and I was unaware. I did not stop to think about male victims. Um, So much of our victimology culture, if you would, and literature and resources and money um, goes for female victims. And it just didn't cross my mind. And it wasn't until um, I went back to that San Diego conference several years later and was speaking. This time I had a big audience. (laughs) And afterwards, um, a man who I recognized from... Um, the audience um, was waiting for me in a courtyard that I he knew I'd have to pass through to get to the hotel rooms, the restaurants, everything. And he was sitting waiting. He'd been there for a good half hour, and he called out to me, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. So I went and sat by him, and he said, your program on mother-daughter 
sex abuse was the closest thing I've ever seen and experienced to my own childhood. He was around 40, very nice looking in a three-piece suit when most people were dressed super early September casual. <laughs> and uh, he gave me his business card. And if I told you, you'd recognize the agency. And he was high up in that agency. And he said, I was sexually abused by my mother from age 8 to 14. And the only reason it stopped is because I told her if she touched me again, I'd kill her. Mm-hmm. And then we sat for an hour and both of us wept. And he told me about his his life. And he was very successful at work, compartmentalized everything, mm-hmm. but married, divorced multiple times, in and out of treatment for addiction. And he said, I've never told another human being. And this is so common for men to not share, not tell what they experience, not deal with it for decades. Um, He promised me at the end of our talk that he would get therapy. I don't know. I never heard from him again. (laughs) I like to believe that that he did. Um, Because think about how hard that is. We tell someone, oh, well, well, get therapy. Right. What? You're supposed to walk into some stranger's office. (laughs) with your heart in your hands and trust them and disclose your most personal stuff and and trust that they'll be able to help you. Right. And a lot of people don't have a lot of money for therapy. And we say, well, shop around. You have to find the right one. Are you kidding me? (laughs) It's very difficult. This isn't looking for a car. This is looking (laughs) for someone who is skilled and trained and understands what childhood sex abuse does to somebody right? and can understand, especially for men, how difficult it is to disclose. There are two wonderful organizations I want to shout out. One, it's easy for y'all to remember. It's called one in six dot org um, in California. And the other is male survivor dot org on the East coast. And, these are excellent, and a couple of the points I'm going to make this morning come from one in six. Um, they've identified some myths, that's hard to say, M-Y-T-H-S, <laughs> myths that keep males from telling. Right. And if you think, in general, how we treat male and female victims, okay, um, this was brought home to me years ago. Um when uh, an acquaintance of mine told me that she was very concerned about her brother. He was a freshman in college. He had just called her that he had been raped the night before. Now, you think about how we react for a female victim, freshman. She goes back to her dorm. She tells her roommate she's immediately embraced, believed, supported. Oh, this is terrible. We're so sorry this happened to you. We'll go with you to get help. Let's go to the rape crisis center and we'll call the police and we'll do all of this. The young man, probably the same situation, was at a party, drank, shouldn't have. Okay, freshman in college. Now he's in the big city. 
and woke up with someone sodomizing him in the mm. apartment. Same situation. Does he go back to the dorm and tell his roommate, oh, my God, no. Right. What on earth does he do? And typically he buries that and doesn't deal with it, but it impacts relationships, self-concept, his questions about his sexual orientation, his whole sense of being, and it's the first week of college. Well, luckily, she told me, and I didn't know what to do, but I called the Rape Crisis Center um, on the campus, and I just said, and this is an important question for all of us, wherever we live, what services do you have for male victims? And I was relieved when they said, don't have him come to our building. Everybody knows it's the Rape Crisis Center. Right. But... Here is a phone number. He can call this number in a half hour, and an advocate will meet him wherever he feels safe. Starbucks, his dorm room, you know, anywhere. And and they did. And my acquaintance friend followed up with me and said um, they got him counseling. They got into a men's group. He didn't press charges. He didn't even know his perpetrator's name. But he got help right away. That's that's the kind of difference that yeah. we need to have for guys, so they don't stuff it for decades. And um, yeah, I know, I know. No one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous. And they're just good people. And also mygenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, copenotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Yeah, I I, I agree. Absolutely. And I, I mean, how... <laughs> Amazing, a separate place for them to go. Yeah, that's more private. Um, yeah. What this this is being brought up right now because of what's going on with the Me Too movement, and one of the people that's been very vocal in it is the I don't know what she is, an actress, producer, director, whatever, Asia right. Argento. Right. And, um, and I, you know, I it doesn't mean that what um, you know, might have happened to her with Harvey Weinstein or anyone else wasn't also abuse, but right. it does shines a light on, um, you know, f- women who abuse. Exactly. And um, when the whole Me Too movement was starting up and getting a lot of attention, you know, because of what I do, I kept saying, okay, and when is a victim of a female going to come forward? Right. When is a female going to be caught? When are there going to be consequences? And she's lost a couple jobs um, for a female. And when will people believe 
um, the victim. And my heart went out to the young man, Jimmy Bennett. Um, and I was worried about him at first. Uh, this was a couple weeks ago because he did not self-disclose. He was right. His childhood abuse from this woman was he was outed um, through messages and photos that were sent to some publication. And I thought, please do not use this young man right. as poster boy for um, female offenders and adolescent males or as male victim or anything. Please do not re-victimize him. Right. Um, and I would not be talking about him even with you now, except I have read online he did come forth with a, an interview um, and is being more open now. Can I read a little bit of what he said? Of course, yes. Because I think this is really, he really speaks for a lot of young men. Um, here's his statement. Many brave women and men have spoken out about their experiences during the Me Too movement, and I appreciate the bravery that it took for each and every one of them to take a stand. I did not initially speak out about my story because I chose to handle it in private with the person who wronged me. My trauma resurfaced as she came out as a victim herself. I have not made a public statement in the past days and hours because I was ashamed and afraid to be part of the public narrative. I was underage when the event took place, and I tried to seek justice in a way that made sense to me at the time because I was not ready to deal with the ramifications of my story becoming public. At the time, I believed there was still a stigma to being in the situation as a male in our society. I didn't think that people would understand the event that took place from the eyes of a teenage boy. I have had to overcome many adversities in my life, and this is another that I will deal with in time. I would like to move past this event, and today I choose to move forward no longer in silence. Wow. Yeah, I thought I thought it was a wonderful statement too, and I've heard, you know, different kinds of backlash, and I, which I'm not going to even give. I know, uh, I know. Any credence to, but I, I find it, you know, just <laughs> if you find out that a an older woman, you know, a woman who is you know, in her, you know, mid to late twenties or whatever, it doesn't matter the age, a woman who is over 18 is right. receiving, you know, pictures of young boys on her phone and so on and has not, and sees this as some kind of a compliment. Um, there is something wrong with that, the receiver of that information, because that should be taken to the authorities immediately to get help for the young person that is, you know, that is doing this act, not that they should be ashamed that they're doing it. I remember I was highly over-sexualized, so young with my father. I mean, I used to pose like I was in Playboy and all kinds of interesting, you know, stuff when I was Mm. very, very little. uh, And that was part of his grooming process. 
So um, if we were into selfies and, you know, I had the internet, thank God there was no internet then because I, God knows what I would have, what I would have done, but that that's acting out. And that is a cry for help. Well, and your point is really good because on the programs I do with teacher offenders, the history of exchanges, text messages, um, pictures, going both ways um, mm-hmm. is documentation. I mean, it's evident, but it's also like you saying, it should have been nipped in the bud. Right. And to not do that and to not have policies in place and to not monitor that and for the individual to not set healthy, safe boundaries. boundaries yes. You know, yes. Period. Well, you hit on something really important. And one of the one of the myths that keeps guys silent if their perpetrator is female is the whole idea that, well, they should just feel lucky. Right. You know, you are being taught about sex by a wonderful, experienced, older woman, you lucky oh boy. Oh, yeah. And our society still really struggles with that whole concept. The differences come up in language and in how cases are treated where the perpetrator is male. Um, If you have um, a male teacher, 35-year-old teacher and a 14-year-old female victim, oh my gosh, they call it what it is. They call it rape, sexual assault. Um, You know, he's a monster. We need to put him away for... For years, how could he do this to this sweet, innocent girl? We never say as a society, well, she's just lucky. She <laughs> she had an older lover. We don't do that. We never know. say that. <laughs> we did, and we used to, because I remember as a teenager, uh, I was like 14, and we, I had a high school, there was, at my high school, there was a, an aide, a teacher's aide, and he was uh-huh. 20, he was like 24, okay. and um, he flirted mercilessly with me and mm. very handsy. Nothing happened because I, of course, it scared the hell out of me. And then I avoided him like the plague. But <laughs> but I did romanticize a bit. And then what went on around me amongst my peers was how lucky I was that I was getting yes. this attention. And I, and I was like, well, on a fantasy level and what the movies tell you how you're supposed to feel and <laughs> books tell you, society's telling you that you're supposed to feel that lucky, even as a female with this older guy that's attracted to you. And But that is not how I felt inside. Right. And the bottom line is we've got laws. <laughs> um, in the Asia Argento case, he was 17. Yep. In the state of California, that's not old enough to give consent. Right. And that's because sex is complicated. Yes, and exactly. all those feelings and, and emotions, and you ought to be protected by law. You shouldn't have to have the responsibility as a 14-year-old of keeping yourself safe. Yes, we can talk to kids about what's okay. We can encourage them to share when something's inappropriate with an adult, but it is the older person's responsibility to keep kids safe. And when it's a boy, you know, it's real, it's real confusing, but it's not a relationship when it, when it's a female offender, you know, they'll describe it. They don't call it rape. 
the paper, right. the newspaper will say they had a relationship. They had an affair. No. <laughs> I, I don't know. think so. <laughs> Relationships and affairs are between equals, right. equal power, equal right to say no at any time, equal right to say I don't think so. Right. And sexual abuse is about power and control and access and narcissism. Yeah. And for... For a male to experience that kind of trauma and then not be able to talk to someone to process it, to what did this mean? Um, one thing that has really helped, I think, um, is a lot of um, famous people coming forward and talking about their childhood right. sexual victimization. And... Uh, I love Oprah. Um, in 2010, you know, she revealed all her own about being raped and, and how she acted out. But in 2010, she had a program, I don't know if, if you saw it, of male survivors. Yes. Oh, that was so powerful. Did you see that? I, oh, I just God, wept. Yes. 200 men, ages 18 to 80, sitting in her audience, quietly holding up a picture of themselves at the age they were first molested. Yeah. And one of the people in that audience who also did a one-on-one -on -one in depth show with her was Tyler Perry. Yeah, he's been a huge advocate. Oh yeah. Yes. And he was sexually, well he was physically and emotionally abused by his alcoholic father, but he was sexually abused by multiple perpetrators. Um, a man in his neighborhood, a, a male nurse, a friend's mother. Um, and the abuse started the first time was when he was just five. Yeah. So when you have him talking about, when you have Matt Sandusky um, with great courage talking about what he experienced and how he didn't see it as abuse at first right. with his adoptive father, Jerry Sandusky, um, awareness is, is increased. But we need more. The the myths, um, boys, there's a myth that a boy can't be a victim of sexual right. abuse. Because how can you be a guy and be a victim? You're never <laughs> supposed to be a victim of anything. You're supposed to beat the crap out of them and run away and be safe. What? Right. You know, we don't put that same pressure on, on a female. Um, so just that means disclosing it is very threatening. What does that say about who I am as a man? Right. If I allowed, quote unquote, some somebody to do this to me, right. and to get the blame gone and the guilt gone, and this was done to you, honey, and it wasn't your fault. You were a kid, and to visit that and get past that shame. Just that alone, it can be a real challenge. Um, and we used to think that sexual abuse for guys wasn't so harmful. You know, um, oh, gee, we airbrushed it, right? Right. If it was a woman. <laughs> you know, oh, it was beautiful. And it's a rite of some... passage. Yeah. Yes. And, and it was in the movies, you know, summer of 42, some of these old films. It yep. was airbrushed with beautiful music and, and, it was rape. <laughs> I know. He was 14. Mm -hmm. And 
his perpetrator was newly widowed and she was grieving. Okay, join a support group. Don't take it out on a 14-year-old boy right. because you're struggling. <laughs> um, then there are the myths. It's really harder for guys, regardless of who their perpetrator is. Okay, if it's a female, they were supposed to just feel lucky and they were able um, to participate. So they probably wanted it. That's what we say to them. And so if it's a female, you're in trouble. If it's a male perpetrator, what are they afraid of? Oh, that must mean I'm gay. Right. And maybe if I wasn't before, um, it's called kind of a vampire myth that if you were molested, raped by a male, it could turn you into a homosexual, especially if you're growing up in a homophobic home. Right. With all these stereotypes, so think about it. You have a you have a twelve year old boy, and whether his abuser is female or male, how can he tell somebody? Right, exactly. How how people will look at him, and then the the other thing that males experience is they'll think that it's automatic that if they were abused. They're going to go on and become an abuser. Abuser, yes. Right. And maybe it's a, a wonderful guy who wants to be a kindergarten or elementary school teacher. Oh, my God. If I tell anybody this, they're going to think I'm going to abuse kids. Exactly. They're going to think that's why I want to become a teacher when, in fact, it's because so many kids need a healthy male role model. Yes. Um, and, and the damage that is done that a female doesn't have to worry about. Okay. Very true. Very true. You know what I thought about, too, about this? When what? you and I were talking, I had told you that we had interviewed um, Mike Resendez and Phil Saviano um, that were part of the spotlight, the Boston Globe spotlight yes. investigation. Yes. And you said, yes. I wonder whether we'll ever bring to light what's gone on with some of the nuns in the children <laughs> in their care. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I'm sorry because I'm always looking at, okay, well, we're dealing with this and we acknowledge that. But what about, you know, who are we leaving out? Right. Because who are the victims that still can never tell because they don't think anyone, you know, will believe them. Right. And um, recently I actually, I'm looking up the slide while I'm talking to you. I actually um, had... I get I get cases from people all over, okay? People who will be in an audience in August will send me a case, email me um, in January saying, Julie, I don't know if you saw this. And it's a network of people looking out for victims. But this woman, I'd never say names or anything unless they've gone through court and been convicted, and she was. Um, Sister Norma Giannani, I can never pronounce, um, 79-year-old. Roman Catholic nun and former principal of St. Patrick's Congregation Grade School in Milwaukee. So she wasn't just a nun and she wasn't just a teacher. She was the principal. And uh, let me find the next slide. And uh, her victims were 12-year-old boys. Two male students, former students came forward. They're now in their 50s. This happened over 40 years ago. And... You know, there's all kinds of statute of limitations and exceptions and things. And evidently, there were reasons why these two 
former victims were able to bring it forward after all this time, some fluke about what state they were in. Um, and in the process, she admitted it. She admitted molesting. She also admitted to molesting four additional boys, mm-hmm. but um, she was not prosecuted for those because of statute of limitations. Um, she abused them. One one man said it happened to him more than a hundred times. Oh my gosh! It was ongoing. She was sentenced to one year in county jail, um, partly because of her age, poor lady, um, and ten years probation. But it's interesting. Her attorney, after about six months in jail, tried to get her out. Say, you know, she's elderly. She's in poor health. She's done enough. And the judge said, No, I don't think so. Right. You gave your victims a life sentence. Lifetime, exactly. You can at least serve your your one year, and if you have medical problems, we'll, we'll treat you in the jail. But um, this was the first case I had seen in the U.S. Um, of, a, of a nun. And now that all these, these histories of victims with the priests are coming out, the newest, was it Pennsylvania? Yeah, with a thousand victims and and over three hundred pedophile priests, and the cover up, Spotlight movie was wonderful. I think we're continuing. I we're not going to go backwards. We will recognize the victimization. We will believe the victims, and more than that, we will believe in their right to have help and to right. have a healthy life and to become the person that they might have if this had not happened to them. I think you and I are are really on the same page with that. Absolutely. Um, Whatever the the childhood trauma, okay, this happened to you. It wasn't your fault. I'm sorry it happened to you, but you can get through this and go on, and here's where you can get help. Um, And that has to be our, our message. I think that's the biggest thing. It was, it was really, um, I don't know if my dad wrote the email or if his wife, his current wife did my, my biological father, where I, you know, I wanted to, I said, all I wanted to hear from you is it was all my fault. I am so sorry. I take full responsibility for what I did. Please forgive me. And I finally got that. And I don't care whether it was from him or his wife or whoever, you know, I heard finally that. And people don't, you know, I think about that in terms of, you know, the trauma that has just been rampant in my entire family, both sides of the family. And I think that's been like the the biggest piece where you kind of differentiate yourself from someone who um, becomes self-actualized, enough therapy, enough whatever you learn about Mm -hmm. boundaries, you understand that this is wrong and it was wrong and it wasn't my fault and what have you, as opposed to the continuation of the trauma that keeps happening in different ways. Um, and I think the biggest thing I learned was, um, you know, with my son, I had said to him, and of course I didn't, um, sexually abuse him obviously, but I, I had had a conversation with him and said, has anything like that ever happened? You know, you can absolutely tell me. 
And if that happened on my watch, I am profound, I am profoundly sorry. You can say whatever you need to say. And he's so funny because he was like, no, mom, you did plenty of other things that I need therapy forever <laughs> for. But that was not, <laughs> that was not one of them. But to be able to be aware enough and responsible enough as a human being to say, I'm aware and this could have happened. And I, and if it happened while you were under my care as my child, it's I take my responsibility. Bad. It's my exactly. bad. And that's right. such a, because I tell you, I have not heard I'm sorry from, you know, from a, from a couple people that it really would have helped to hear. Not an I'm sure. sorry, but a truly, I fully apologize for for what happened on my watch that kind of thing it makes such a big difference I, I say this I guess to uh, I don't know if there's listeners that have been abusers to someone in some way and you know if you're out there it really makes a difference to say you're sorry and really mean it to the person that you hurt it really does Kristen that that is really really powerful and it's on that i mean that's coming together with things i'm i'm thinking too um it goes with how important it is for how someone responds when someone you care about discloses to you yeah okay um i have you know crazy conversations on airplanes and if someone's <laughs> sitting by me and we're not reading they're going to disclose something by the end of the flight i'm sorry Every it's just time. because you know i'm i'm safe and airplanes feel confidential yeah and i'll never see you again but you know they'll say they don't say where are we going because obviously we're going to the same place. But what are you traveling for? I'm going to present at a conference. Oh, what kind of conference? Child abuse silence, you know. <laughs> um, and then a few minutes later, what do you speak on? Well, I speak on female offenders. Silence. And a little later, can I tell you something? And I used to get a variety of things from my sister was raped to, you know, all kinds of things. Well, in recent years, it's been about male victims. Yeah. And I share this for your listeners who may be in the situation where someone discloses to you. That time is extremely important. Oh my gosh, yes. It's, it's a sacred disclosure. So last year, this woman sitting next to me, and we got to that point, and she said, can I tell you something about my husband? And she said, we've been married, I don't remember, 30 years, and he's wonderful and wonderful father and stuff. But recently he told me that he was sexually abused by a girl babysitter when he was a kid. And I couldn't take off my hat. It was too, my professional hat. It was too <laughs> important. So I said to her, what did you say? Just like that, probably. <laughs> she said, what? I said, what did you say? How did you respond? And she said, well, I, I think the first thing I said was, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Yes, she believed him. I said, yeah. what else? She said, I said, it wasn't your fault. I said, good for you. I said, what else? She said, well, I think I told him I loved him. I said, okay, that's great. What else? <laughs> and she said, well, I thanked him for trusting me enough to tell me. I said, you win. <laughs> I said, those three things are so so 
critical because it isn't just the experience that is stored in memory, but when you disclose your most personal history, when you were the most vulnerable, when you were hurt, how the listener receives that is so important, and it's a first step to healing. Yeah. And she said her husband was getting therapy and stuff, and, and she offered to go with him. I said, oh, honey, you're good. Okay? <laughs> and, you know, it sounds sassy, but I've had people tell me that when they did disclose, they were so, guys, Dismissive. they were so mocked or blamed or yes. ridiculed that they never brought it up for another 20 years. Yeah. So... I, I think today we've been all over the place, but talking about how hard it is for, for males especially. Yeah. And one in six, and my question to guys who were not abused is what are you, the five and six, what are you doing to help your brothers? Yes. You know, have you check in your area and see what resources are there for guys? Are they user friendly? Is there a hotline? Is there some way that a guy can get help, whether it happened last night or 20 years ago? And are you speaking out on behalf of male victims? And do you check out your legislature and the laws and, and everything to help? You think of how women historically have helped each other. But it's because we were open. You know, hi, my name's Sharon. I'm a breast cancer survivor. Donk. You right. don't see guys going, Hi, my name's Sam. I'm a prostate cancer survivor. No, I don't think so. So right. in the secrecy, the shame and isolation grow. And so if if you're if you know men, love men, are related to men, care about men, be sure that you're a, a sensitive, informed person in their lives that it's never too late for them to disclose to you. Absolutely. How safe are you? How safe can you, how safe can right. you be? Right. Tell our, tell our listeners where you, cause of course we always could talk for eight hours. But. <laughs> I know. I know. Wow. Oh, it is. The time did go by. Oh my. <laughs> tell our listeners where uh, the, the conference that you're going to be at yes. this month in September. Yeah. yeah. I'm excited. It's at um, Lake Junaluska <laughs> in North Carolina. Western North Carolina, near Asheville, and it's the 24th Annual Reflection Symposium put on by the Children's Advocacy Centers of North Carolina. I'm super excited because of the speakers they're bringing. I reconnected. You get to know each other a bit when you're at the same conferences, right. and um, I'll be there, of course, <laughs> but in addition to me, um, Corey Jewell Jensen from Portland, Oregon is speaking, Dan Powers from Plano, Texas, Jim Tanner from Boulder, Colorado. These three were at the Crimes Against Children conference in Dallas, and they will all we will all be there together at the North Carolina conference the end of this month. Phenomenal. They have brought in amazing speakers, and, and some speak about um, working with sex offenders and what we've learned from them. Different topics, some talk about grooming. I'll be talking about mother-daughter and male victims and resiliency. But it is a wonderful conference and really encourage um, people to come. Yeah, and if you want to Google it, um, you can go, you can just type in, um, well, what can you type in for that? I know no one's going to remember. If you type in um, children's, 
Yeah, Children's Advocacy Centers of North Carolina. Okay, and that'll pull it Their up. page comes up, and then it says training, and then it gives you all the information and who's speaking when and topics. I'm an excellent website. And what's um, your website? Oh, mine is www.caper.consulting, all one word, dot com. Fantastic. Caper Consulting. Thank you so much, Julie. Oh, Oh it has been a pleasure. My goodness. (laughs) I think I talked about half the things I thought I was going to and a whole bunch more that, you know, when you and I talk, it brings up. Yeah. Lots of stuff. Yep. Yeah. Well, thank you. Love to do it anytime. Well, thank you. Take care and, and blessings to your listeners. Thanks. And thank you. Thank you from me to our listeners for another edition of Mental Health News Radio. But never without good intentions I heat up and act on my emotions Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial.